Good morning. It is indeed a pleasure and an honor for me to bring God's Word to you today. Please open your scriptures if you have them, digital or paper or otherwise, to Isaiah 40. Two weeks ago, Sarah brought us verses 1 and 2 and the comfort of God. I want to remind you that in the most immediate context of Isaiah and for the nation of Israel, this was a promise to be comforted at the end of their Babylonian captivity. They were in a position of waiting on God and yet with a growing sense of discouragement. Just as the message, this message in Isaiah 40 of comfort was applicable to Israel, it is applicable to us, the church of God. We are the true Israel of God, as Paul calls us in Galatians 6, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy beyond them and upon the Israel of God. Paul further explains this in Romans chapter 4, culminating in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his, all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In light of that, my friends, we are given comfort and we can receive it. We are going into Advent, and this Advent season is all about Christ's coming. Isaiah emphasizes and opens with this emphasis on how Christ's coming is intended to bring comfort to his covenant people. But in this morning's passage, we will turn to the subject of preparation for the glory of the Lord, which was revealed at Christ's coming. So before we read this passage, let's look to God for his help in really understanding and applying it. Lord God, today we come in need of comfort. We come also, Lord, in need of you in the need for your glory to be revealed in and through us. And Lord, we come to understand your call to prepare a straight highway for our Lord. God, may you prepare our hearts for this truth of the highway that you will walk upon and bring your glory. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, 
In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Ian, I'm going to skip ahead, so I'm sorry for that part. To verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed, thanks be to God. So we begin with this desire that God's people be comforted. He delights to bring them peace and pardon. This was initially fulfilled in Israel's release from captivity in Babylon. But there is a primary fulfillment at Christ's first coming when sin was defeated upon the cross and those spiritually captive to sin's power were set free by faith. But verse 3 begins with an assumption. If you see it, it is an assumption that there are barriers. That is not something that we immediately jump to. That is not a conclusion that we think that there can be barriers to God coming. There is a process of preparation that's necessary. So the question that comes out of this passage for me is how do we prepare? Obstacles have to be removed. What are these obstacles? I'm convinced that whether those obstacles are self-imposed or whether they're stumbled upon, that's beside the point. The question is, how do we overcome them? This passage also sets up for us a a contrast between the uncompromising, unpromising landscape and the coming glory. Oh, my friends, do you feel that today? The landscape feels hostile. It feels unpromising to any good results for the kingdom. This passage begins with a voice and a very interesting picture of a voice crying out. You might notice how I read it. A voice, and then I paused, in the wilderness, the first words of that voice. You see, I've always tended to recognize this with an eye towards what I thought it meant. A voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare you the way. But I've been challenged to read it differently, and that's important. In the wilderness, prepare a way. So that voice begins crying 
And these verses are three steps to understand the purpose of Advent. You'll notice that I skipped and went to our reading verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 fully describe the glory of our Lord. It includes these seemingly incontrovertible or irreconcilable aspects to his glory. It includes his might and his rule, but also his love and tender care. So first, the voice calls us to prepare the way. Next, we're called to remove the obstacles. And finally, behold, we are called to behold the glory. So let's prepare the way. First, let's consider the voice. Who is the voice? Well, fortunately, the gospel writers left this up to little doubt. They each accredit John the Baptist as the fulfillment of this verse, and he is the voice crying out. So it's a human voice who testifies to the divine voice. The one crying out has gone into the wilderness. They advanced into the wilderness, and they're calling on the people to come and make a way, make a road for the Lord. So who is the audience? Well, in verse 1, it clearly says, my people. It's the verse, it's the voice of God calling out my people. So in both the near-term application and in the ultimate fulfillment, it is a call for preparation to those in covenant community. Let me say that again. It is a call to us who are in covenant community. It is not a call for those heathens to prepare the way of the Lord. It's a call to us. Even at this time, the time of the writing and the time today, Many of God's people were and are living in compromised ways that can hinder the coming of Christ in their life. We can easily find ourselves, let me say, I can easily find myself in this passage and hear the calling of God to me. A few weeks ago, we saw the funeral procession and ceremonies of Queen Elizabeth II. Like a Black Friday sale in our country, the crowds lined the passageways. They lined the streets, waiting hours and even days so they could catch a glimpse of the bands and the, the marching troops and the, finally the beer, the, the, the funeral cortege. This preparation pictures people lining up for the most glorious and magnificent process any human will ever see. This is far more than the coronation of some earthly king. This is the procession of our God. But 
they're not called to just line up. You see, apparently, the road needs to be cleared. There needs to be a highway. And the voice immediately evokes this wilderness and desert. It's not a hospitable place. You see, in wilderness in the Old Testament was not what we think as the beautiful tree-lined lakes of the flat tops wilderness that I love, not the aspen trees and the flowing water. The wilderness was a place of death. It was a place of harsh, unrelenting environment. We are better to think of it as the desert. If you've ever hiked in our deserts around here, when it's 105, you know what I mean. I rode my bike into the Fruta Canyon, the entrance to the monument one day when it was like that. And the ranger reminded me at the gate, he said, it's 105 here, but in the canyon, it goes up by about 10 to 15 degrees from the radiating heat from the wall. Wrong, he was not. This, though, is a description of a passage describing a physical landscape, but intending that it be taken spiritually. A literal interpretation is unconvincing. The preparation of physical path is not necessary for a spiritual being. John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of this text. How did he read it? Well, he literally went out and preached in the wilderness, thus the problem with my reading. A voice cries out in the wilderness. So we might draw from this that we interpret the passage literally. But what does he cry out? What was John's message? He called on them to repent. He didn't call out for them to clear the vegetation or move the rocks. What then is the spiritual significance of this wilderness or desert? Scripture routinely invokes these metaphors to emphasize the time of testing or discipline. It would remind the original readers of what time? The wandering in the wilderness. Forty years in the wilderness at the time of the Exodus. And at this time, at that time, Israel was between Egypt and Canaan, between Egypt and the Promised Land. And they were waiting on God. During Isaiah's time, They were between Babylon and the promised land. Once again, waiting on God. And at the time of Christ's birth, it was an in-between time where the nation of Israel had had 400 years of silence from God. It can also be seen in our time today. We are waiting between the promise and the fulfillment of the second advent of Christ. I'd like you to look at Hosea. You don't have to turn there, but in Hosea 2.14, that tender voice of divine comfort is emphasized. In the context of bringing harsh judgment on Israel 
for her idolatry and departure from God, we read this. I tell you, when I read this verse, I cannot bring these two parts together. Alluring and wilderness. Hear what he says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. How does God expect us to be allured to his tenderness by wilderness? Where does this alluring take place? He brings them into the wilderness in a place of testing and discipline in order to what? Bring her back to himself. Preparing the way of the Lord is in some sense then recognizing that the difficult circumstances of our lives serve a redemptive purchase, purpose. The very things we know or we believe are working to crush us actually save us. They are part of of the redemptive work of God in our lives. So then, how do we prepare? Well, we we prepare for his coming in the same way that John the Baptist spoke to his audience to prepare for his coming. Repent. Now, it's easy to think of the word prepare to drive you then to, well, I've got to do it. I've got to move those boulders. I've got to move those obstacles. And therefore, I must do the work of repentance. No, my friends, it is not something that we can make happen. We don't conjure up within ourselves a heart of repentance. We respond in simple listening and responding to the voice calling to us to prepare. You see, repentance is responding to and not stifling the cry of that voice. Is your heart dry and scorched like the desert? Are you full of the heat of unrelenting and unforgiven sin? If so, you begin by hearing that voice calling you to turn. You see, repentance means to turn and to turn away from that sin in repentance. My friends, you just heard confession, repentance, and assurance. You see, we we, we often shorten that, right? We say confession and assurance. But as part of confession, I'm not just saying, God, I have sinned, 
Now I want your assurance. We are saying, God, I did this. I sinned. I am full of sin. And yet, with your grace and by your grace alone, I turn and repent. And therefore, I have your assurance of forgiveness. So maybe you understand all that. And maybe you even agree that you're sinful and need to repent. But what does repentance really look like? That's what we'll consider in this next point. That is, remove the obstacles. Here we are again, more landscaping. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Now, before I go further, I want you to think about the fact that this highway, the Lord has convinced me through wrestling with this passage, that this highway has some element where it is me. I am the highway. So as you hear this, bringing down this part and raising up this part, talking about a road, I'm convinced that I'm part of the highway. A few weeks ago, as I was thinking about this passage, I had listened to it over, and I listened to all of Isaiah 40. I was listening to it on my, on my car, as I was, on my truck, as I was driving I-70 through Glenwood Canyon. I'm going to betray my age. Um, but as a child, I remember driving Highway 6 through Glenwood Canyon. It was a beautiful canyon, but it was also really tough to get through at times. We broke down in the canyon at least one occasion, and I remember helping my dad change a tire, and it was not a pleasant experience. It was a narrow two-lane road, and I did not feel safe for him or I. But I remember our first drive on that complete road I was seized with a sense of beauty of the highway. I, I'd never actually thought about the beauty of a road. Roads are very utilitarian. Their value to me was always utilitarian. But this road was much, much different. Much like the path described in this passage, all the obstructions were removed, making a clear and easy passage through the canyon. And not only that, but the elevation of one stretch of the highway looked like it just soared through the canyon. Why am I wasting all this time on Glenwood Canyon? Because we are a highway. That there are obstacles that must be removed. Both internal and external sins must be attacked. Our hardened hearts must be softened. In Matthew Henry's commentary, I love this passage. He says our hearts must be leveled by divine grace. There are two ways this can happen. 
those who are cast down into despair and self-condemnation must be lifted up. And those that are like I know I tend to be self-righteous must be humbled or brought low. This contrast is that we must be humbled but not condemned. Whether we're filled with pride or the depths of despair, we need to hear that voice calling us out of whatever frame of spirit we don't belong in. This state of preparedness is one of faith and hope. My friends, I got tired of the road analogy and I found more in a building analogy. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes the same process as building a house. Here's his words. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. What are the internal and the external barriers to Christ coming more fully in your own life? Are there particular sins you've imprisoned and kept inside? Are you filled with fear, pride, or anger? Maybe you've always thought of yourself as an autonomous being, and you're able to take care of yourself. Admitting need would be a failure. Whatever it is, this voice calls us to examine the barriers in our lives that impede worship. Worship in our lives. They impede us from being the highway for the glory of our Lord. They may be internal or external. They may be obvious or subtle. I may not have mentioned any of them. What are the valleys you've walked through this year? What are the mountains you've tread on this year? Remember, all obstructions to his coming are and will be removed. Total transformation is expected in preparation. The glory of the Lord is revealed in the hearts of those who humble themselves, removing all self-glory. 
And I don't know about you, but that sentence is tough. But my friends, repentance is not the only aspect of preparation. There's an, also an anticipation of his coming when we will behold the glory. I love that phrase, behold the glory. It's not, we're going to behold some glory or a glory. It is the glory. This passage builds like hiking a mountain, like one of our many 14ers in Colorado. <laughs> you hike and you hike and you hike. And there are false summits. You say, it's right over that next ridge, but it's not. But when you persevere, you reach the summit where vistas of other peaks and valleys open up to you. The sublime enjoyment of the tallest peak in the most pristine wilderness pales in comparison to beholding the glory of our God. Whether we are compassionate priests or rebuking prophets, our goal is to prepare the way of the Lord. If you think this is about your feelings, I'm afraid you've missed the point. If you feel this is about the feelings of others, you might be closer to the point. But if it's not ultimately about God's glory, then we have not removed all the barriers. This preparation is not about our enjoyment of the advent of Christ. It's not about removing the guilt of our sin so that we can have a free conscience, so that we can celebrate Christmas. That's a great benefit. But it is not the primary purpose. Hear this. The preparation is about the Lord's travel. The highway is being prepared for him to walk it. It's about his arrival. Straight means to help arrive without fail. Level implies travel without difficulty. And free of obstacles means movement without hindrance. The results of our preparation, friends, is that we have the privilege of beholding the glory of our Lord. The glory of the Lord can refer to his presence, his revelation, his reputation, his character, or his exalted state. It is the recognition of all of God's worthiness, whether that be in our justification, our sanctification, or glorification. In fact, God's glory is central and is a central concept in all aspects of our salvation. This is not only for every believer, but for all flesh. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
For the Israelites, they beheld the glory of God in his miraculous deliverance under Pharaoh's hand, in the cloud by day and by night, and preserving them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. For that original audience, the glory was seen in the promise that deliverance would come. And for them, it appeared to come in the proclamation of Cyrus, and it did. At the time of Christ, John the Baptist announced the arrival of Christ, the Messiah. And his glory was seen in his triumph over death and in his resurrection. We too prepare to behold that same glory at his return. Correction of our unbelief is done by meditating on the promises of God and his covenant faithfulness. Doctrine plus experience or fulfillment. When God's glory is revealed in our lives, transformation is inevitable for us, the individual, or for the greater body of Christ, as well as the culture. So what frame of spirit prepares us to receive his gospel? Repentance and adoration. Turn away from your sin and return to your God in reverent worship. Repentance and and worship are the proper response to the prophet's call to prepare the way. It means our hearts are ready and it makes our hearts ready for his arrival. Matthew Henry said, The mouth of the Lord has spoken it, and therefore the hand of the Lord will affect it. The word of God prepares us for this work of God. Have you experienced God's faithfulness? Experience is nothing unless accompanied by his revelation. Preaching isn't preaching without the word. Faith isn't faith without the word. So, where do we go? Me. Start with yourself. What sins in your life are obstructing Christ coming in his fullness? Face them and turn. But don't stop there. What about obstructions outside? How can we help remove them? For our body at New Life Church, how do we stir one another and provoke to love and to good works? If we're a body united in Jesus Christ, we're called into action by this passage. It is not passive. It is one in which we respond and act in both internal and external ways. I was convicted by this. What would change in my life if I truly believed this and lived this out today? And friends, what would change in our body if we believe and live it out right now? What is this goal of our worship? We are called to prepare the way through our own personal repentance and adoration of the Lord. 
but we're also called to stir that up in each other. I pray that you continue to meditate on this truth and you are stirred up to know, cherish, and show God's glory to others this Advent season and at all times. You know that I always like to do something different. I would like to close this time by meditating in art on preparation for the glory of the Lord. The Messiah starts out with four sections of this verse. I won't play all four of them for you today. Starts out with the beautiful aria, comfort ye my people. And then it goes into prepare ye the way of the Lord. You can listen to all those great tenor on that one, by the way. But this last one is, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Ian?
Lord, may you raise in us the highway of preparation for your glory. Only in your call and in your redemptive grace are we able to eliminate these obstacles and turn to you in repentance. God, in your power and in your grace, remove all the obstacles that your glory may be revealed in us and that the day will come and may it be soon when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you alone are Lord. Amen.